Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Oh, hello again! It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to talk at you. So, this week, I had the enormous pleasure and privilege of talking to Sean J. Wright. He's a DJ, a singer, and he was in Hercules and Love Affair's second lineup. He's a big deal, guys, and we had an amazing chat about his love for Casual Records, an influential dance music label founded in 1994 by Curtis Jones, who also DJs and records music as Casual and Green Velvet. This was a really special conversation for me. Sean is such a smart, insightful person, and it was a real joy to dig into our shared love of dance music and culture. It became kind of a nostalgia fest for me, because dance music and clubbing were a huge part of my adolescence and young adulthood. Going to raves and clubs as a teenager gave me my first taste of true independence. Those were my first experiences outside of acting where I felt like I was part of a community. And that community was built around an incredibly broad spectrum of people. People of all different races and sexualities and gender expressions dancing to this music that felt so pure to me. It was so emotional and overpowering. And for a queer kid who was struggling to come to terms with his identity, dance parties were a place where none of that mattered anymore. Or at least I could let go of it for a while. I was also lucky enough to be in London at perhaps the peak of club culture. I visited my sisters in London as a teenager and had truly formative experiences with DJs like the Chemical Brothers at Turnmills, R.I.P., fuck, I loved that place, and Goldie at the Metalheads parties in the Blue Note and King's Cross. And then when I moved to London, Super clubs like Fabric and Home were opening up and I could go out every night of the week and I got to see all these DJs who I considered to be heroes. DJ Sneak and Ronnie Size and Daft Punk and Gene Ferris and Moody Man. The list is endless. It was an insane and completely magical time in my life and thinking back on it makes me feel really emotional. These clubs were the places where I grew into the person I am now. The places where I really learned to love myself. The places where I had the best nights with the people who became my closest friends, people who are still my best friends. I feel so privileged to have had those experiences. And that's why dance music still means so much to me. And I'm intentionally using that umbrella term because I was, and I still am, a pretty equal opportunity consumer when it comes to dance music subgenres. I am now too old and tired to fully participate in club culture, much to my husband's chagrin. 
But on the nights when he does manage to drag me out, I still feel that same excitement bubbling up when I walk into a club. It's the excitement of possibility of freedom, of raw emotion being released communally. It feels like watching the story of my life played back in front of me. There. That was a cute little story for you. You're welcome. Would you like more of the same, but in a much more coherent manner? You're in luck. Here comes my chat with Sean J. Wright about casual records. So, casual records. Casual records. Ooh. Yeah. Do you remember, like, finding out about um, the label, or was it just kind of, like, loving dance music and being around it? You, I'm, I'm, like, speculating when you can just tell me. (laughs) Um, it was the sound of Chicago at the time, uh, on the radio and on the streets and at the picnics and the school dances and the gas stations. Wherever you would go, there was, like house music around mm-hmm. and when i was young like you know brighter days was a really big hit by cashmere and Daje, and so that kind of was my introduction because uh, the song was just played like every hour a few times an hour sometimes um for years the remixes the original all of them were just you know played so much and i found the songs really attractive and i went on like you know a mission to discover who made those records. So I would call like the radio station and ask questions and they Mm. told me. And there were a few record stores in my area and there were some, you know, in the city. And I would get on my bike and ride and try to find the new releases from Casual Records because I was so enamored with the music that I was hearing on the radio. And that's how I first discovered it. But I didn't really discover it. It discovered me. It woke me up, (laughs) you know, like it was there. And I reacted more than I discovered anything it wasn't like a big secret uh it may have been for other regions of the country but it was it was local mm-hmm. and it was really big here and i know like the percolator had a big splash around the world and brighter days they're well known but yeah in chicago it just felt like it was pop radio i thought it was pop music that's amazing i, I mean like i always m- my experience of like growing up in the twin cities was that mm-hmm. dance music at that time was like something that you couldn't find on the radio it was or you if it was on the radio it was like pirate radio stations or really small local ones that it was like you know not mainstream mm-hmm. um so it's that's amazing to have had the experience of being able to like have it in your life as something that was just everywhere um and i don't know if it's the same so much anymore like i grew up in the 80s and 90s so it was i think it was that era or that like span of 10 15 years where dance music was really hot and fresh and it felt like it was a part of more of a local dialogue or mm -hmm. you know it was global at the time but it felt more embraced and then something transitioned like to me in the late 90s early 2000s where hip-hop began to really dominate in a way in chicago specifically Mm -hmm. that it hadn't before like it was of course it was always present and it was a big deal but they kind of coexisted together and complemented one another and then that just kind of dissipated from the mainstream radio stations and it's still i mean house music is still big in chicago they still do like dances and the squares and daily center and, and millennium park and stuff but it doesn't it doesn't feel like to me that it resonates the same way mm-hmm. yeah and also i mean i guess you know it's obviously Chicago is the beating heart of like all dance music, you know, all, all of 
the modern music that's played in in clubs, whether it's dance clubs or, you know, the stuff that you hear on the radio now, (laughs) so, so, so much of it comes from chicago dance music and you know it's like the birthplace of house all all of those things so i I don't know if that has something to do with it as well that it's like i think um, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah from my vantage point you know i would say so it might be an audacious claim but i I think chicago is central in that conversation as well as detroit and new Mm. york and Mm. manchester and berlin in their own ways but yeah again i think there was a, a a special brew that happened in chicago that kind of ignited an excitement around this new sound yeah i love that you called radio stations to find out what songs were that's like (laughs) that kind of detective work i was all about that like if i'd hear a song somewhere and really love it you know obviously there was no um like shazam or anything so yeah i mean it was yes a testament of the time like you really had to you had to research and you had to do it in a way that caused you to go outside of your comfort zone sometimes. You know, you go to the record store and make a fool of yourself and sing the song to the uh, attendant, you know? <laughs> and they were like, I don't know what, you know, do, 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 do means. Like, but yeah. they would locate it because it was, you know, and it was less music circulating at the time. It was, it was newer. So it was easier to identify. There was, you know, there was less redundant records. Things, things kind of had a stamp. And I think it's just all of it, like, it's a, again, it's all relative to the era. I was still using Dewey Decimal System then, like, all the time in the library. <laughs> I was going to the library all the time, and I do so less. And I can go on my phone, and I can say I, were, I request a certain book, and they could have it held for me. You know, <laughs> right. before you'd have to call on the phone, but now I don't even have to talk to anyone. I can just go pick it up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that human interaction was really crucial at that time, especially for like dance music where it still all kind of felt, even though it was big here in Chicago, it still was underground. You know, you knew there was this global community building around it or communities building around the sound. Mm-hmm. So it was intriguing to me at, at 11 and 12. I, I had, you know, a phone I could dial, a landline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And hopefully my mom wouldn't pick up when it was too late, you know, if I was calling the radio station at midnight. <laughs> no one would be picking up to make a phone call, like, go to bed. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but that that um, element of community as well, like, obviously that still exists. Like, m- musical communities, I think, are always going to exist regardless of what technology comes along. But that feeling of, like, going into a record store or talking to somebody on the phone and making that connection with someone and then... And, you know, maybe starting a conversation. You're like <laughs> singing the doot doot doos to somebody, trying to figure out what song it is, doing that detective work, and then it can lead to, oh, you like that song? Have you heard this? Whatever. Yeah. Um, and those kind of like random interactions. Maybe they're. I think. I think they still happen, but they just. It's a they different still thing. Happen for sure. Like yeah. I spent some time working at Gramophone Records, not in the last couple of years, but like when I moved back to Chicago in the early part of this decade, um, for the first time after being off for a long time, I was you know go to Gramophone and work odd days when I had time off, and you would see people come in and discover new music and discuss new things and bring in new records with new sounds, and so it's still happening. But I don't know if it's as common. Mm-hmm. Do you know like. It, it seems like if you're not into the niche of the music or you're not in that world, you might come across stuff differently. You might come across it through Spotify mm-hmm. and that might arrange for you um, or, you know, whatever streaming service you use or SoundCloud. And that might spark, you know, you to investigate and make connections with people online. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, I think that community does exist still, but there's something about the work in, in real time and, you know, mm-hmm. the tactile aspect of it, the the touch of it, the, the looking into someone's eyes or hearing someone's voice tell you something back. I think that's still really special and that human connection is really pivotal to the culture. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah, I appreciate when I see that. I also talk about this fucking constantly i'm sure that people who listen to this podcast are gonna be like put into a coma by me talking about it again but um (laughs) like the feeling of flipping through records in a shop and like having that totally you know random if you if you have like a big bin of records that are not even that organized if it's just like house and Mm -hmm. it's not alphabetized and you're flipping through and you just find random things and maybe the album cover appeal appeals to you or there's like somebody who's featured on a song that you like and you know you you give things a chance just because you know there's some little element of it that kind of catches your eye and again that can happen on the internet but it just it isn't the same thing to me it's not um it's not there is something for me i think that happens when i'm both on the internet or when I'm a chance upon a record at a store that I've been in search of for a long time and wasn't able to identify, especially like just being kind of aware of this music for so long. You'll hear, I've heard songs that I haven't heard in 20 years mm. and just come across it at a record shop and I'm like, wow. Yeah. That's so, it's nice to discover new stuff, but like the old stuff that you never thought you would hear again because there's those moments. I, there's a song going through my head. I walked through Bergheim maybe five years ago and I was, you know, it was the soundtrack and it just felt so amazing and I was like, I may never hear this song again. Mm. and like maybe in 15 years i'll come across it and you know just recently two weeks ago i was a gramophone and that happened to me i was just looking through records and i heard a song i hadn't heard in over a decade and i was like this is the moment Mm. and i bought it immediately and i went to the back and i ripped a copy and i have i have the record and a rip and i I want all of it i like i'll never let this song go you cherish that because that moment doesn't just happen in the record store where you discover something new but it's also on the dance floor Mm. and that might just be like the video that you always like i always remember that particular song i can sing it back but i can never find it and i've looked for it and looked for it and looked through you know that particular dj's mixes to see if it was anywhere just train spotting all their like whole discography because the song was that i mean their whole you know mix their mix series because that song was so amazing and no luck mm-hmm. and the mystery of that is really what is like it's a driving force like the uncovering the unveiling mm-hmm. yeah and having that drive to figure out how you can hear the songs again or maybe being frustrated by it not ever you know not actually being yeah. able to find that music but kind of being the delayed okay. gratification yeah, yeah. everything's instant i like that maybe you won't get it again Mm. and that that's okay and it's like you have these yeah these memories this really strong emotional connection to that music from the moment that you heard it but yeah you know sometimes it's okay for things to just be memories and then if you get surprised by it like you said 10 15 20 years down the road it's this if you're fortunate enough to live that long yes right right yes it is yeah it is it is incredible and it's also like how any, you know, it can happen with a pop song. Mm. How music can transport you back to that world. And anytime I hear a song that makes me feel that way, that song made me feel at that particular moment, I'm transported and I can see everything very clearly. It's like super coherent, you know. Mm-hmm. At Burkhine, everything's not like that. You know? <laughs> yeah. Or certain clubs, you know, you could be in a, in a haze, but that moment was just like time stood still. And I was like, oh, this is the whole reason. You know, like, it sounds really cliche, but it's... It, it, 
is like it's fun to discover and it's fun to be surprised and it's fun to not necessarily know where you're going mm-hmm. but land at the destination that you always wanted and i think that's what the music sometimes misses when we we get it too easily mm-hmm. yeah and i think there is also this special magic about dance music and a, for for people who go to clubs who go to parties like uh, you know we're we're part of kind of clubbing culture as well that it's a very specific kind of feeling like the the emotions that it evokes the the things that you think about about like the experiences that you have listening to that song it's very particular and yeah. all music can make you feel you know Rem, make you can reminisce listening to songs that you love but um for me at least dance songs it's like this very specific kind of emotional reaction and i would say reactions because like i think about a song like what to do like thomas bangata like the the really french touch sound you know like mm. how that could live in the raves at one point in time and coexist in the ballroom scene and also simultaneously be like in the black gay clubs and, you know, be in the mainstream clubs and everybody's having this ex- experience with this one particular song, mm-hmm. but they're all processing it maybe differently culturally um, where they're actually experiencing. One could be in a warehouse, one could be out in the open field, mm-hmm. you know, like at a, at old school rave, one person could be like, you know, voguing. And so mm-hmm. like this one particular song could encompass so many different moods and feelings and atmospheres so we're all bringing to it our own cultural experiences too right. because like I, I i know that for sure like the underground is just not monolithic it's like so many different subcultures overlapping in ways and sometimes never even connecting but a lot of the time the only connecting point is the actual phone mm-hmm. you know yeah and i just think you know in this giant venn diagram where you have like different nationalities, different geographical locations, different um, mm-hmm. sexualities yeah. and races and all of these different things yeah. mixed up. And the overlap is joy. It's like, you know, people getting this being elated, having the time of their lives. I mean, you know, not universally. Obviously, people have bad times in clubs. Yeah. Too, but, but no, it um, can be like, yeah. It can it can really be um, a release of all kinds of emotions. Mm-hmm. Joy being one in particular that is really, um, I think, a desirable one to like try to inspire, because mm-hmm. you're you know you're not creating it, you're inspiring it. Yeah. You create the song if you're a musician, or you know you create the the fusion of the music as a DJ, but you're only suggesting that someone else enjoy it. And if they're able to connect with that enjoyment that you find in that thing that you either created in the moment, or you created before and it's on the vinyl, or it's you know it's digital, however it gets out, then it's like an agreement between you two, mm-hmm. you know, the two parties and then collectively can happen on the whole dance floor. Wow. That's magic. Yeah. That's magic. Yeah. And to know that that's happening with so many different intersections of identities um, all around the world at any given moment is mind blowing. Yeah. And that like the route that people take to access those emotions, it, it doesn't matter like where you're coming from or, or, the environment that you experience it in, or I mean, you know, those things are important to your experience, but that people from all walks of life can experience the same kind of music um, and and, um, still get that same kind of pleasure from it. Yeah. And also like fuse, I think it doesn't, I think it does matter that um, the context matters a lot because we see like the results varying, like Mm. my exposure to, 
Paul Johnson and DJ Funk has produced a different sound than say like Daft Punk, mm-hmm. who you know acknowledges them on teachers, and it blew my mind to some degree at 15 and 16 years old to realize that the music that was so commonplace for me that I thought was you know in some ways universal, but I knew it wasn't overground i knew it wasn't the mainstream norm like ghetto house and chicago house was really having impact on these young guys in france right so much so that they you know dedicated a song to all these teachers and it didn't produce the same sound for either one of us but it inspired both of us to blaze on this path of dance music and i mean not to compare myself to daft punk at all but you know there's (laughs) a you know there's there's a but there's a thread that like there was a similarity inspiration, but it's also also different results that come from that. And I think it is because of the different contexts of our environments, again, maybe our racial identities and cultures that correlate with those things and language, yeah. you know, uh, music as how it's adopted in each culture. So it's just, it's just fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I think with Casual Records, it was that was the first record label that I was able to see music and how it phased globally and what it did to people who may not have been as accustomed to such a, at the time, still radical sound. Mm-hmm. And to me, even now, when I listen back to the earlier catalog of Casual Records, I'm like, this stuff is the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it doesn't sound a relief. It doesn't sound dated. It doesn't sound out of out of our time now. It all sounds fresh. It all sounds gorgeous. It all sounds interesting. And yeah, and blah, I, blah, I, blah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that, d- definitely. I, I feel all that, too. And like like what you were saying about Daft Punk, I think, as as an example Having that list on teachers that's so wide ranging and just um, talking about all the different influences, I think to me speaks to the fact that dance music evolves so quickly and splinters off so quickly too. Mm -hmm. And you can see from all the casual record stuff, the seeds of, you know, whatever, UK Garage and Two Step and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff that is, there's like this del- direct linear trajectory towards other forms of dance music, but mm-hmm. it's still in, in and of itself is its own thing. And it's not like the casual record stuff, as you said, it didn't become dated because other people were influenced and inspired by it. It's like, it's its own thing. It's um, Motown to me. Yeah. Mm. It's in that way. Similar to like, you know, Tribal and uh, the stuff from Masters at Work and all their output, like those were very profound moments in the 90s that shaped my aesthetic. Um, And you can't, it's not really, you can't really replicate it. You can try, but it it won't feel the same. It's always going to, the technology is different. It's going to sound more now, you know, unless you're using the exact same equipment in the exact same way. Why would you want to do that? Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it does disperse and meld and become other things that are, I think the stuff that Alenka and I do are, are, is like heavily influenced by that time. But it's in our own process of it. You know, we're we're coming from behind them. We're not contemporary. So we're not we're not in that moment doing it. But we were kids picking up the music. And now I don't want to say regurgitating sounds, but it is like, you know, like it's a it's a rehashing and a reformulation of those things. And it definitely, like, you could sit them next to each other and you could say, like, oh, this definitely inspired this. In the Mm -hmm. way that, like, Michael Jackson is just, like, prominent in culture now or or Prince, Mm -hmm. you know, that that is that sound. Right. Yeah, Uh, yeah. Uh, digging into the music a little bit mm-hmm. more. Um, you mentioned a couple of, of tracks, but, like, you know, I, I think there, there definitely is a casual record sound, but there's also, like, 
strands of that sound. It's like, you know, the, for example, just talking about the label boss, like the cashmere stuff compared to like the green velvet stuff wasn't really casual record stuff, but it was like relief. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, there were songs that kind of leaned in that direction that was a little more like acidy. But I think the sweet spot for casual record stuff is like a lot of vocal stuff, kind of soulful, but still with that spare rubber bandy bass stuff mm-hmm. underneath it. But again, I'm just waffling on. You tell me. <laughs> what, what, like, do you have particular tracks or particular artists who were signed to the label who you like thought were particularly um, inspirational or? Oh, Dajay for sure was a big figure in my mind Mm. (laughs) she was like i had like a poster on my wall i was the kid who called the label my first my sophomore year of high school and asked if i could interview her for a research paper and they agreed to allow me to do it and she answered my phone call and like it was yeah like so um and i had no intentions of being a singer at that time or to sing really i just was into the the world of dance music and her voice really resonated with me Mm -hmm. so strongly and her imagery as well because like here was um a beautiful black woman who had this expressive way of dressing herself and but she looked like someone i knew mm-hmm. you know like she looked like she looked like familial i knew this was all happening in chicago so it didn't feel so far away it wasn't like Janet jackson over here you know it wasn't right, the right. big staging it was intimate and but the music to me was stronger than other things i was hearing on the radio like you got me up and is it all over my face and the remixes and the clash of R&B and gospel sounds with house music, sometimes even techno, was just really fascinating. Um, so her work with Cashmere in particular was really important to me. And also Gemini, um, mm. Spencer Kinsey, like something like um, If You Gotta Believe in Something, that song just still to me is like a goalpost I would like to reach as a creative it's funk and it's disco and it's house and it's all these things that are kooky and fun and free and smart, really, mm-hmm. really smart and really, really challenging, mm-hmm. I think, because um, it's just not like a direct 4-4, which he's made those, but it's like his music, his mixes, his mix style really, for me, I think, pushed the genre further. Of course, DJ Sneak stuff, Derek oh. Carter. Yeah, um, yeah. Derek Carter is a hero. One of the first things I ever bought. And it was like, there was like an overlap between casual records and my coming out as a a fully fledged queer person Mm -hmm. and having my mom start to accept that this was my, my pathway. Cause you know, um, there was some conservative, you know, Christian values that were happening where she was like, I don't want you to listen to this music because she knew it was, you know, the soundtrack of the queers, you know, growing up Mm -hmm. here in Chicago, she knew what time it was. And here I was, you know, um, showing up as myself and, that music wasn't highly encouraged. But, you know, when I turned 16, she was like, what do you want? And I was like, I want this mix by um, Derek Carter for Casual Records. And, you know, mm-hmm. she took me to go get it from Gramophone. And that was kind of a bridging point between her and I understanding each other. And partially it was because she heard the music and she was like, this is really fascinating. And I just went off on a tangent. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, it was like how music can bring people together because she could hear some of the disco and funk influences that she had grown up with mm-hmm. um and how they had 
permeated that space because unlike a lot of people in Chicago, my mom was a stepper. She wasn't into house music. She was into like classic 70s and 80s R&B and, um, you know, jazzy stuff. So that music was really foreign to her. And that that CD helped us have a conversation. And the Bucketheads, you know, um, all of mine helped us have a conversation about She's like, I know this sample. I know this song. Mm -hmm. And I think it opened her eyes to my queer identity as not such a bad thing, but something that kind of, you know, worked with her identity mm-hmm. and her music and she could see she was like oh it wasn't just like you know you're just gonna be out there on on, on, on at the rocks voguing <laughs> like <laughs> you know, you're gonna, it's more it's that too but it's more than that also mm-hmm. so yeah yeah back to the heroes Derek carter mark grant and johnny fiasco boo williams all of them yeah all of them um touched me in a way andre harris but definitely at the front of that would be Daje mm-hmm. and Kashmir and then probably Gemini and Derek Carter. Yeah. All, all of those people. It's just like... All of them. All of them. Just I mean... Like I'm, I'm literally listing everyone. Yeah. But like <laughs> just legends. And I think the um, that's, that's the thing when you have a, a label that has this much influence and this much talent that it is like... Yeah. The yeah, answer really is everyone. I don't think it's given the credit. I don't yeah. think it's given the credit it deserves. I think like so many different sounds have been cultivated like something like the percolator is probably to me like one of the most singular songs in the genre mm-hmm. it's really fucking weird like really weird it does it's not a traditional song in any sense it's like it, i mean it hit me probably the way that i feel love hit people in the 70s mm. by donna summer you know like it's just radical and its approach and nothing quite like it exists since like Mm -hmm. there have been things that have utilized the same you know technique or same sounds but they don't have the same impact yeah i think that's really interesting that's interesting work you know like it can travel to new jersey and to baltimore and and inspire club music to you know develop in their own ways and be a part of their conversations about club music so it wasn't just about chicago dance music was like you said earlier pushing other cities and genres forward yeah and that percolator as well the it's it's kind of both really complex and really simple at the same time mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. yeah so undeniable and so instantly recognizable like that yeah um, <laughs> yeah and it's so it's we're in a good spot now because it's so rare to hear it mm. so when you do when a dj works you know works you out and brings that in it's like a special moment yeah a special moment and also i mean just talking about Derek carter a little bit more that his reach and his influence is so huge. And I mean, he, outside of the connection to, to casual as well, he's just like this absolute legend, somebody who is so influential and so important to the history of dance music. Yeah, um, he definitely forged his own path. Yeah, but then, you know, working with this label, being able to collaborate with all the other people who who uh, were a part of this family of, of artists is, is incredible too. I'm just looking at this. I was reading a um, resident advisor interview with Derek Carter and he, the one quote that is like staring me in the face right now is him saying, I'm a fucking rascal. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I feel, I feel like that's a good summary. Just like He's someone, fun too. He's yeah. really, really fun. He's yeah. really, really fun and supportive. And yeah, since I even really started you know, walking out this journey, he's always been encouraging and just a nice person to see out and about or, to, you know, shoot a message to and or have to listen to and get feedback from, you know, different ideas. He's the reason why Elena and I, um, Alinka, 
my music partner first and I did all classic, you know, he listened to our demos and made sure they got through. Mm. And, you know, so the first person, the first song I ever did with Hercules and Love Affair, he remixed and I was like, I can't believe this is happening. He was like, oh, great song. You know, like he's always kind of just made things really equalized and accessible. He's, yeah, he's very important to Chicago. He's very important to the world. Mm-hmm. But we take a special pride in him here, for sure. Yeah. And that kind of feeling of like wanting to lift up other artists, wanting to like think of the world of music in general, but dance music in particular as like a family, you know, people all loving the same music, going out, having these like fun experiences and just wanting that to like be bigger and better instead of like hoarding it for yourself like wanting to share it with as many people as possible yeah which is oftentimes more so what i run into like gatekeepers Mm. and you know but if you're if you're about this life then nothing stops you in my opinion like nothing's that they found their way i'll find mine you know like no one i'm not entitled to anyone's um hard work or privileges they've earned themselves Mm-hmm. I have to earn them myself. So I get why people would want to hold on to some things, especially some things culturally that may have been taken from them without um, their regard or mm-hmm. the, early, the earlier generations, especially, you know, bad record deals and no support, no team to really guide them through. And I'm not speaking, I'm speaking in general, not for any particular situations, um, mm-hmm. but just stories I've heard that they've been passed along to me. You know, it's, it's not an easy industry. There's the dance community. And then there's the industry of dance music, and those are oftentimes very different things. And so, you know, to have someone like a Derek Carter say, hey, I'm going to give you a chance, or I'm going to, you know, book you for a party, and I'm going to announce you as what's happening in Chicago right now, that's a big deal. I don't take those situations for granted because those are less frequent, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of it now is who's speaking about you in the media. If RA covers you or if Mixmax is covering you, then you may have a foot in the door in some ways. Or if you have an agent, like there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, forming yourself as an artist um, that extends way beyond the music itself. So um, I don't want to paint it as like this romantic notion of what dance music is, because I I think um, it can be disheartening when you walk into it, if you're not prepared for how much business acumen you may need or what it is to operate as a business but having said that the foundations of what i'm able to do is from great support from friends who believe in me and also you know colleagues who believe in me who take a chance and but there's a fine balance between the two you have to know the difference you know like Mm -hmm. this is this is my friend or this is someone supporting me and this is you know the stuff that anybody else in any industry is going to go through Mm-hmm. The backbiting or the obstacle courses that are placed before you, the moving of goalposts. Sometimes you're ignored for a while, and that's a part of the process, but you can't give up. Yeah. And have hard work and really um, consistency. Yeah. Push, pushing work. yourself. Yeah. And you just like, it's like with anything, like if you cut the water off before the pot starts boiling, the, bo- the water's never going to boil. You know, it's a bad analogy, but you know, you have to keep going. You have to keep going. Mm-hmm. You have to really, really dedicate yourself to this life if this is what you want to do. Because. The results might not be immediate. There is really no overnight success in this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have years where you're struggling and nobody's paying attention to you. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have Derek Carter saying <laughs> he loves your stuff and he wants to do a remix for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
but that doesn't necessarily catapult you to like the top of the charts. No, you know? no, no. Yeah. It's like, you know, no matter, I guess it's just like, it's a nice feeling it, more than it's it doesn't, a great it doesn't guarantee it's, you success. Yeah. It's just like, it's nice to mm-hmm. feel supported by somebody who um, Absolutely. has had that much influence. Absolutely. And you're talking about someone who's 30 years into the game, 30 plus. Mm. So that was something he earned over time over a long period of time you know like yeah yeah so that's a that's a um it's a big deal yeah and also the people alongside you like because there are the people who have been doing it for a while but other people who are your the community talk about like you're building communities and tribes you know with this kind of music for me fortunately has been very global i have resources in australia and i make music with my friend stereogamous and who have mentored me and guided me through so much um and taught me so much and have respectfully learn from me things that you know they may not have experienced growing up there from my experience here in chicago and everywhere else i've been to or connecting those dots with berlin and london it just keeps looping around itself and it gets tighter while also expanding at the same time you know it's just like it's just and you you watch it unfold and you're like hey i see what's next for you because we've been working alongside each other for so long i could see your success coming i can feel my success coming whatever that success is on that next level of things, you know, because I think just forging your own path is a success in it of itself. That's not very highly encouraged or supported mm-hmm. in our society. You know, we're told to do whatever we want to do. But then when we want to do something that's outside of the status quo, it's like, you're not going to get paid for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to. Um, we're not going to validate that or legitimize that as a real thing because it's not and really at this point in time, especially when it's, you know, your newest stages of it, you're not making money for corporations or you're not making money for like government. So what's, what's the, what's the incentive mm-hmm. for it to be, you know, the arts, what's the incentive to support the arts? I, you know, I can list a million of them, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily always land on capital. They don't land yeah. on, you know, money. So and that's kind of the driving force behind doing this podcast for me too. Like I, it, mm-hmm. I started thinking about it after the 2016 election when as, you know, part of all of Donald Trump's shitty list of policies that he was planning to bring in, he was talking about cutting funding for like the National Endowment for the Arts and for PBS and whatever. And just thinking about like in a country like this that already doesn't put a lot of value on public service generally, but- mm-hmm. Um, especially on the arts, like treating the arts like they're frivolous and it's not something that is important to people. So like really talking to people about why art is important to them and how it affects their lives was, yeah, kind of like the the reason for for doing this. And I think the more that people think about how art impacts their own life and how important it is to them, it's like, okay, well, if that art is important to you, how do you think it got there? <laughs> yeah, um, and I know. think... Like I think with like the policymakers in particular, they're aware that it's not frivolous, and they know that it's a it's a it's a key component for marginalized people to be able to rise up mm-hmm. um, through arts funding and education. Because if they can cut the funding to certain people, but you know, people with access and resources may still be able to have those piano lessons mm-hmm. because they're able to take them privately. You might not have that in school. So what are you left with? Like it really it makes a it does exactly what they intend for it to do to strip people away from choices and options the very thing that we're told to do you know grab our bootstraps and pick ourselves up and or pick ourselves up by the bootstraps is kind of impossible when all the educational resources are removed Mm -hmm. music is a form of literacy dance is a form of literacy and like we're saying they're not just saying it's frivolous i know that intentionally they're saying it's powerful 
and it's about reining that power in and like mm-hmm. you know making it so that people's voices are diminished and the the means mm-hmm. of expressing yourself like exactly. art is something people can create you don't you don't necessarily have to you have to have some kind of talent something there to start with but yeah. you can also create art without anybody's permission if you want mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. um and i think limiting people's means of getting to the point where they feel comfortable creating or where they feel like it's even an option for them. If you can tell people that, you know, this is a life that is going to be too difficult for you. You're not going to make any money. How are you going to contribute? How is that going to, um, how are you going to be successful doing that? Um, that, you know, reinforcing Which is that just idea. a wild concept because like everything is designed like everything mm. we touch is artistic in some kind of way. Everything is creative and that we've um, decided to siphon money into production or to like consumption is like, you know, like the ultimate thing and not the producers of this thing that we can, you know, consume. Yeah. It's interesting. Capitalism is really interesting in that way. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think it all ties into something like for why casual records is so inspiring to me like i I understand that he um curtis jones cashmere green velvet was working towards being an engineer i went to school for engineering which is where i first started studying in undergrad i was going to design roller coasters and um i was just like i can't do this i can't sit at a desk i can't do physics all day i just i need to release and i studied dance and business management and i knew i wasn't going to be a professional dancer but performance was always a part of the equation that was always important to me and how you can i don't know if he thought like you know when he was making these artistic expressions and wearing platforms and bell bottoms in 1992 on the cover of the album artwork that it will inspire me mm-hmm. that's you know that's how art it, it, it informs um, future generations through your creative expression and it allows them to imagine a world that they maybe have not yet seen but know that they want to be there or go there or create their own worlds and so defunding programs is a direct assault on possibilities mm-hmm. and also and, I, mean, I think what what you were saying about curtis jones i mean i, I was reading that as well um about he went to college for was it engineering did you say engineer i think yeah 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 and this there are so many djs so many people who are involved in dance music in particular i think who have a like science or math background Mm -hmm. and it's all connected it's like there's so much you know Mm -hmm. the creation of music involves stuff that is really mathematical and really scientific as well and just being able to make those connections in your mind and see that like even these careers that are supposed to be the things that are the furthest away from art Mm -hmm. are directly linked it's all connected absolutely Um, i mean music is math so mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah um I feel great about this. This has been so fun and really interesting, and I'm so glad well, that you. we did it. Yes. Yeah, me too. Thank you for inviting me again, and yeah, it was great chatting. Yeah. Um, if people who are listening want to find out more about what you're up to and find your music, where would they do that? Uh, I am Sean J. Wright, all one word on all the platforms soundcloud so it's s-h-a-u-n-j-w-r-i-g-h-t you can find me via soundcloud i post you know mixes there and not so many like much of the new singles but the music is always released like b port and tracks 
source and iTunes, Amazon, and Twitter, Sean J. Wright, and Facebook as well. You can follow me there. Yeah, I post on Instagram too sometimes, just my gig. So I'm yeah. Sean J. Wright on there also. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you so, so, so much. This was so much fun. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Bye. What a lovely, lovely man. I really loved that conversation. Thanks so much to Sean for making time for me. Please seek out his music because it is beautiful and you need beauty in your life. Okay, onwards, recommendation time. Since we're on a bit of a nostalgia thread here, I want to talk about the Dark Crystal TV show that was just released on Netflix last week. I loved the fuck out of that movie when I was a kid, and I was really trying to keep my expectations in check on this one because the output from Jim Henson Studios since his death has been... Let's say a little uneven. But this show has really surpassed my expectations so far. I'm only a couple of episodes in, so don't tweet spoilers at me. But I'm really enjoying what I've seen so far. It feels faithful to the original. The design is in keeping with the design of the film. And the attention to detail is incredible. There are digital effects used in conjunction with the practical puppet work. But it's done so subtly that it never overwhelms all the proceedings. And... I'm really excited to watch the rest of it. So check that out, especially if you're a fan of the movie. My other recommendation is a bit of a weird one, a kind of meta one, but it's a piece in The New Yorker by Dan Pippenberg. I'm pretty sure I'm butchering that last name, so apologies to Dan. He was collaborating with Prince on his memoir at the time of Prince's death, and that memoir is going to be released next month. The New Yorker piece gives a bit of background about how the collaboration on the book began and offers a little bit of insight into the last few months of Prince's life. As listeners of this podcast will know, Prince is hugely important to me and his death was and still is devastating. Reading this New Yorker piece made me cry. (laughs) There are so many small moments of Prince's greatness and wisdom peppered through the conversations he had about the development of his memoir, and it really made me feel that incredible loss again. But it also made me really excited to read the book when it's released. I know it's going to be a tough read because anything to do with Prince is tinged with sadness for me now. But hearing his story, at least in part in his own words, is a really thrilling prospect to me. So read that New Yorker piece. It's called The Book of Prince, and I'll link to it in the show notes. And that's about it, folks. Thanks for hanging with me again. Don't forget to follow me on social media at Spark Parade. And please rate and review the show when you have a moment, perhaps on your lunch break or on the toilet. A quiet moment of your choice. Okay, be good. Take care. Until next week. Bye. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.